I vividly remember my first impression of heaven. It took place one Saturday morning when I was watching cartoons. I was five or six years old, and one of the cartoon characters got zapped. And she floated up into the sky, and she was transformed into an angel, and she sat on a cloud playing the harp. And for some reason, that image just stuck in my head, and for years, I actually thought that's what heaven would be like. I thought in heaven, we would all be angels, and we would spend all of our time just making music on harps. And that actually didn't strike me as either fun or exciting. Now, fortunately, my views on heaven changed because I became a follower of Jesus and I started reading the Bible. And among other things, I learned that heaven was just one part of a much larger picture, the kingdom of God. In recent weeks, we've been learning a lot together about God's kingdom. Jesus came to tell us that the kingdom is near. And he taught us that the foundational principle of the kingdom is love. He showed us how to pray in such a way that we could learn to love God and to love others as we love ourselves. He made it clear that he has a deep concern for the hurting and the marginalized. And he loves it when we choose to love the unloved. And all of this gives us a taste of the kingdom of God in this life. Yet it's only a taste because the best is yet to come. God's greatest gift of love awaits, and we will experience it. We will experience it one day in the future when God establishes His kingdom forever. And fortunately, we don't have to guess what that kingdom will be like. God offers a sneak preview of what lies ahead. The last two chapters of the Bible are sort of like those movie trailers we see in the theater, the preview of coming attractions. And we get to find out what's in store for us. We get to find out what we will experience when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. We're going to do that this morning by looking at a few passages from the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, and we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 1. This is the Apostle John writing, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And listen to this promise. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I don't know about you, but I love the book of Revelation. It is a wild, weird, and wonderful book of the Bible. It is a prophetic vision given to the Apostle John, one of the original 12 disciples, And it's written using what's called apocalyptic language. 
Now, apocalyptic writing describes times of great cataclysmic change, such as the end of an empire. And apocalyptic writing is highly symbolic by design, which means we can't take every part of it literally. And this makes it a challenge to interpret. And as a result, believers believers quibble over many of the details. But the big picture is readily apparent. And the big picture of Revelation is that John is given a vision which describes the end of an age. And the book is full of gloom and doom and judgment. And yet this prophetic vision ends on a high note because here in chapter 21, we see the beginning of a new age. The age of the eternal kingdom of God. And this new age begins with an act of new creation. There's a new heaven and a new earth and a new city of God. This new creation will recreate and even surpass what God did in His original act of creation. And most importantly, this new creation will forever eliminate the curse of death that resulted from human sin in the Garden of Eden. The new creation is God's perfect answer to the fall of humanity that's described in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Now a key to understanding what God is doing is to define what's meant by this word new here in our passage. And we need to define it because the Greek New Testament, the original language of the scriptures, has two different words for new. One word means brand new, which would apply then to God's original act of creation recorded in Genesis where he made everything out of nothing. The other Greek word for new describes taking something that already exists and then renovating it, renovating it in such a dramatic way that it's new. And it's that second Greek word that's used here in our passage. And so the existing heaven and earth don't disappear, they pass away because God remakes them. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all are based on what came before. They're going to be familiar, and that's why John is able to recognize the city of the new Jerusalem. They're familiar, and yet the results of God's creation, new creation, will far surpass the world as we currently know it. And that's because God has something so much better in store for us. Now, as we think about this idea of new as a renovation versus new as brand new, here's a way to perhaps picture this. Let's envision a residential lot in a neighborhood with no home on it. And we go and buy that lot and we grade it, and we build a house on it. Now that's an act of new creation because no house ever existed on that lot before. We've made something brand new. Fast forward 50 years, we've moved out, the house is now in the hands of neglectful owners. The yard's full of weeds, the paint's peeling, and the carpet's threadbare. And our grandchildren buy that house, and they do far more than just paint it and clean it. They move some walls around. They add on a room. They completely redo the kitchen and enlarge it. They landscape the yard and put in a beautiful garden. 
And that's much more than a redecoration. It's much more than a remodel. It's a renovation. It's an act of recreation that makes the house new. It's all based on what was there. But the difference between the old house and the new house is profound. And then let's suppose that we stop by to visit that house one day, that house where we used to live. We would find it both familiar and strange. It'll be familiar because it's still a house. Still got bedrooms and a kitchen and a yard. And as we wander through, parts of it would would remind us of what it was like when we used to live there, and yet parts of it would astound us because it will be so different. I think that's a picture of the kingdom to come. It is going to be familiar because there will be a physical earth with cities where we will live, and yet it's going to be so different because it will be dramatically renovated. It will be a home of great beauty where we will experience God in a new way. It will be a home where the pain of sin and death is eliminated. Our current home will be replaced by a new reality. Now, when we recognize that the new of the coming of the kingdom is a renovation rather than something brand new... And when we recognize that the purpose of this new creation is to wipe away death and the curse of the past, I think it gives us a clue about what aspects of John's vision might in fact be symbolic. For example, in verse 1, John says, there's no longer any sea. The oceans go away. Does John mean that literally? Or does he mean it symbolically? Do those oceans perhaps represent something? Well, I personally think that he's using the word sea symbolically. And I conclude that for two reasons. First, oceans play an essential part in our life in this world. And if the sea goes away, everything we know about geology and geography and meteorology and marine biology will be made irrelevant. Now, could God do that? Could God make the oceans go away? Of course he could. Will he? I I don't think so. You see, I think that kind of a change would go beyond a major renovation. I think removing the seas would make this planet virtually unrecognizable to us. Now, there's a second reason, and it's based on something profound that I learned from my wife. My wife is a great student of the Bible, and she has delved much more deeply into parts of the Old Testament than I have. And she taught me that for the ancient Jews, the sea often was a metaphor for evil. The oceans and the waves were symbols of judgment and punishment and the curse of sin. And we see this in places like the books of Psalms and the book of Jonah. And so then, if if the purpose of this new creation is to wipe away the curse, then I think John is using symbolic language to make a powerful, powerful point with his original audience. If there's no more sea, then sin and its consequences are gone forever. And this is reinforced by what we read here in verse 4, and it's going to be repeated again and again throughout this passage. God is going to wipe away the old order of things to make everything new and to give everyone a fresh start in His eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom defined by a new reality where pain does not exist because sin is impossible and everything is full of God and His goodness. 
It will be a kingdom without sorrow because either our memories of the past will be wiped out or we're going to be able to remember things without pain. It will be a kingdom where daily life will be free from the kinds of anxiety and anguish that we now experience. And because there is no sin, we will be set free from our own selfishness, which means we will be able to live together in perfect harmony with God and with each other. And our new life in the new kingdom of God will be based around a new capital city. Our capital won't be in Salem, Oregon. It won't be in Washington, D.C. It's going to be a holy city, the city of God, what John calls the new Jerusalem, which, by the way, is not to be confused with modern-day Jerusalem. And this new capital city of the kingdom of God will far surpass any city that currently exists. We see a description of this in verses 15 to 21. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. Isn't that an interesting term? Human measurement. And it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made with twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. It's almost incomprehensible, but this new city will be dazzling. It's going to be made out of precious gems and minerals, or it's going to be made from heavenly substances that look like these things. And we have a picture here that God is going to lavish on us His incredible riches by giving us a world that will shine with beauty. You see, he wants us to spend eternity in a place that doesn't decay, doesn't rust, doesn't need dusting and vacuuming. Every day we will be dazzled by the handiwork of God. The new Jerusalem will be beautiful and it will be big. As we learn from verse 16, the city will be 12,000 stadia long and wide and high, which means it's going to be 1,400 cubic miles in size. Now, this is really different from the way that we typically measure the size of an area. We think in terms of squares, not cubes. For example, if you go to buy a house, you'll probably inquire of the realtor about the square footage. You want to know how much floor space you're going to have. If you were to ask the realtor about cubic footage, you'd get a very weird look. Because we don't think about how to use the space above the floor in quite that way. If you go on Google and Google the size of our state, you'll learn that Oregon is 98,466 square miles. 
no one would ever try to describe our state in cubic miles because Oregon doesn't have depth or height, it just has length and width. And yet, the New Jerusalem is measured in cubic miles. And this is so very different from what we know, it's so very different from how we think, it's so very different from our experience that I think we're forced to ask once again, is John giving us a literal or symbolic description? In this case, I personally think it's literal. I think it's literal because I believe it fits within the concept of a renovation rather than something brand new. You see, we already live in a three-dimensional world. We deal with height and depth all the time. We just inhabit those three dimensions in a particular way. We can fly in a plane through the sky. We just don't live in the sky. And I think John is telling us that in this future city, this future world, we're going to live differently within our three-dimensional world. God is going to make it possible for us to occupy all the space because He is going to make all things new. Here's a, a metaphor that perhaps can help us visualize this. In our current world, we're, we're sort of living life like caterpillars. We're physically limited by our bodies in the way that we can experience the three dimensions of our world. In the future kingdom of God, though, we'll be like butterflies who have left behind our cocoon and we'll be able to freely explore every aspect of our three-dimensional world. So I think part of the richness and part of the beauty of our future home will be our ability to enjoy it in all kinds of ways that we can't even imagine right now. Beauty, majesty, freedom of existence, these are phenomenal gifts that wait for us, yet they're not the most important thing. What truly will be liberating will be our new experience of God. And we find a description of that in the opening verses of chapter 22. 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. You see how that point gets emphasized again and again. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. Think about that. They'll see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So I mentioned a little bit ago there is a real link between Revelation 21 and 22 and the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And that link is made very strongly here. Back in the Garden of Eden, God planted an orchard, and in that orchard he put two trees. One was the tree of life, one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told Adam and Eve, help yourself. Eat whatever you want, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed. They did exactly what God said not to do. 
they ate from the wrong tree. And humanity has struggled with sin ever since. And here in the coming kingdom, God's going to fix that problem. And there will come a day when you and I will relocate and we will move to the new Jerusalem and we're going to find the tree of life waiting for us there. And God's going to give us that tree as a source of food and as a source of healing. He's going to use the tree of life to give us new life physically and relationally and spiritually. And that's why John writes with confidence there will no longer be any curse. The stain of sin will be completely gone and death will be gone, which is why there will be no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. Human beings will be restored to a proper relationship with God. We will have the privilege of knowing Him and seeing Him in a personal way. And this is such a radical transformation from what we could experience today. I don't know if you ever think about God this way, but if God himself, in all of his glory and majesty, were to come into this place right now, we would all die. Because imperfect, sinful people simply cannot be in the presence of a perfect, holy God. And the awesome thing is that will change in the coming kingdom. We're going to walk with God and talk with God just as Adam and Eve did in the garden before they sinned. In the new Jerusalem, we will get to see God face to face because God will have redeemed us and healed us forever. This healing is not just for us, but for the people of the world. One huge consequence of sin is conflict, not just between individuals, but between nations. And in our future home, the nations are going to be healed, which means there will no longer be conflicts over trade and economics and borders. Divisions over land and power that lead to war are no longer going to exist. Because in the eternal kingdom of God, People from every nation and every tribe and every ethnicity and every culture and every language group will come together as one. We will not be subject to the whims of any earthly ruler. And we will not follow any ruler or king except the Lord God Almighty who will be seated on his throne in the heart of the new Jerusalem, our new capital city. I think this is a marvelous summary of what waits for us. And I think it's clear that when we experience that new life in the coming kingdom, we're not going to be angels playing harps. We're going to live in a beautiful world. We're going to engage in productive and fulfilling activities, and we're going to interact with God personally just as Adam and Eve did in Eden. And best of all, the dark side of humanity will be gone All we will experience is the light of God's truth and the light of God's presence and the light of God's love because God will make everything new. And so here at the very end of the Bible, we get this incredible glimpse of our future home. This is where we're going to live and spend eternity and God is doing all this, he's preparing all this because he loves us. 
And I think one of the most amazing things about the coming kingdom, one of the most tender things about the coming kingdom is that we will not be subjects of our king. We will be children of the king. Listen to these words recorded for us in chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. John's writing and says, He said to me, this is Jesus talking to him, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, which means the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And here's the promise. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God. They will be my children. Children of God. Jesus has promised the kingdom to his children, to those who are victorious, which means people who put their trust in Jesus in this life. And everyone who makes the choice to live by faith in Jesus will inherit, will inherit this future kingdom. And these words are here, this vision was given so that we can live with hope. If you're a believer, hold on to this. Let this vision give you hope. Let this remind you of what is coming to encourage you to hold strongly onto your faith in this life no matter what circumstances might come your way. And we need to remember that Jesus told us to pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe this vision is here to remind us not just of the future, but to remind us that we need to pray for God's kingdom to come now and to live as kingdom citizens now while we wait for then. And if you're not yet a believer, I hope this preview of coming attractions intrigues you. I hope it piques your interest. I hope you find it inviting. And if you'd like to know more about how you could inherit this eternal kingdom, I want to invite you to make your way over to the prayer corner after the service. We'll have an elder or two over there, and they would love to explain to you how you can join us in the life of faith, a life that will culminate in the great joy of eternity with God in the kingdom that is coming.